Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. There's a new movie out now called Come On, Come On. It's written and directed by my guest, Mike Mills. Come On, Come On centers on two characters, Johnny, played by Joaquin Phoenix, and his nine-year-old nephew, Jesse, played by Woody Norman. They aren't close, but circumstances force them together. Jesse's mom needs Johnny's help. She's in L.A. taking care of Jesse, but Jesse's dad is in San Francisco, and he's having a manic episode. She asks Johnny to take care of the kid while she tries to get her ex into the hospital. At first, Johnny moves in with Jesse in L.A. It's not an easy fit, but they start to bond. Then, Johnny decides to take Jesse on the road for work. It's a film about the extraordinary burdens of parenthood, the ways those burdens change parents, and about kids and how amazing and resilient they can be, even in the face of serious trauma. In this scene, Johnny is reading Jesse a little bit of The Wizard of Oz before bed. And white is the witch color, so we know you are a friendly witch. Dorothy didn't know what to say. Dorothy did not know what to say to this, for all the people seemed to think her a witch. Why aren't you married? Um, I was with I was with somebody for a long time, Lisa. Um, and she knew very well she was only an ordinary little girl who had come by the chance of a cyclone into a strange her? land. I still do. Then why did you break up? I don't know. Mike Mills, welcome back to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you back on the show. I'm so happy to be here. Congratulations on this amazing movie. Oh, thank you, man. So you have a kid that's about the age of the kid in this movie. Were you thinking of your own kid when you were writing it? That's that's the seed of it all. All the experiences that my kid led me into and all the deepening of my understanding of myself and the world that your kid tends to do to you, the parent and the adult. And I wanted to try to describe that space or try to hold on to it actually too because it does... It does all evaporate, goes away, it goes by. Yeah, I mean, there's the main adult character in the film is a radio producer or podcast producer. And there's a moment where he tries to convince the kid (laughs) that what's great about recording is holding on to things. Yeah. And I wondered if you just wrote that in there. You're like, I'm just going to put a light on this. (laughs) So obviously... That's one of the themes of the whole film, right? It's like your kid's life whizzes by, completely changes yours, and they don't remember so much of it. And there's constantly all these like little mini griefs like to being an adult, like, oh, the five-year-old version is gone forever. And that was a rad version, you know? And then seven-year-old version is gone forever. So it's like this crazy feeling. That line, though, that came from Starly Kine who's a, a radio journalist, radio person. She read the script and she was just sort of helping me just talk about it. And she said that thing of like, one thing I love about recording is that you get to kind of keep it. And um, so I, you know, I said, can I put that in the script, put it in? And then Joaquin kind of did his own version of it. But yeah, that's that's from Starly. When you had a kid, did you feel like you were ready to go? 
Yeah, I was 46, so I was like really ready to go. I was really, I felt like I had missed the train on the whole being with a person and having a kid boat, right? So I was like very grateful, very just like, just so happy. How did it compare to what you thought it would be like? Um, That's a lot of build up, 46. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just super down for all of it, I have to say. I was, it's like, it's like the, I who struggle with meaning, fullness, or holding on to meaning, sustaining meaning. It's like all of a sudden there's this thing in my life that like every single minute is just utterly meaningful to me. Even if we're like arguing about brushing our hair, I'm like, I'm down for this argument. It's like totally beautiful and, and engaging and I'm just, I'm in. So I've just loved it. I'm like, I can't get enough. So that's me. <laughs> <laughs> what was the scariest part about it to you? Oh, there's so many scary parts. And that gets kind of personal in a way that I can't share because it's other people's lives too. But you're, you're never more vulnerable, I think, than when you're a parent, right? You're never more vulnerable than when you're loved, and you're never more vulnerable when you're taking care of someone who you have to like literally keep them alive for a number of years, right? And then they need you so badly. That's almost the scariest thing, right? Like to be really responsible or whatever. It's not all on you. They have their own journey, their own soul. They came with their own mission, it does feel like to me. But you're still this cosmic responsibility that's nothing like you've had before in your life. Like I, I don't sleep still, right? My kid's nine. If there's like if a toothpick dropped in my neighbor's house, like I wake up, you know, <laughs> like you grab fully a ready. Yeah. Bat. <laughs> Not the baseball bat, just just like with intention towards wherever my kid's sleeping, you know, just your radar never really turns off. One of the things that I found very moving about this film, which is, you know, this kid named Jesse's father is bipolar and going through a, a manic episode over the course of the film, was the way that his uncle, Johnny, has to look at how trauma is shaping this kid in real time. Mm -hmm. And try to grasp what he does and doesn't have power over. Mm -hmm. What Johnny or Jesse doesn't have power over, or both, What Johnny doesn't have power over. Yeah. I mean, Jesse barely has, you know, yeah. <laughs> an eight-year-old is really developing agency. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think throughout the film, because he's not a parent, right? He's an estranged uncle that becomes the primary caretaker and alone, like on the road, alone. So he's guessing at everything, right? And I love that as a character, but it's also completely accurate to my experience as a father. When you're a father of uh, one kid, you have no idea what's coming next. I think people had two or three kids, maybe they have like a little bit of idea, but I'm sure it's different every time in ways that are completely surprising. So I found that contrivance of having an uncle as the lead in my story, which was something I did to get it away from my life, right? To create distance between me and my loved ones. But it became like actually a very accurate tool to describe uh, fatherhood to me, that you never know what's right. You never know how to do it. It feels like to me, even if you're there and you're totally connected and you're totally in, it's like you have no lack of excitement or love or commitment. It still is guessing. So when this like really heavy thing comes up and you're wondering how it's impacting this nine-year-old psyche soul who is, while so expressive, is also completely cryptic and mysterious, right? You directly ask a kid what's going on, they're not going to tell you most of the time. So, um, they often don't know. 
I mean, that's... Yeah. Or even if they know, I think I've experienced a lot where they know, for whatever reason, it's like some combination between boring and vulnerable making to tell you. So they're just going <laughs> to yeah. take the other route, take any other route. Um, at least my trickster likes to do that, just like any any other way. Yeah. And to me, the that having a character is dealing with that is a heightened version of something that I feel all the time with what exactly positive and negative. And I say negative with like love and and not that it's bad or should be like kept at a distance. It's like life, right? It's like any plant has positive and negative, right? any tree. So like, what do you inherit from your parents? You know, what do you uncontrollably inherit, including like the darkness or the things that you, that are going to be difficult for you, right? And then simultaneously, what are you giving? You know, what are you unconsciously, unintentionally giving to your kid? And that lack of control you have on that on both sides, I feel like. I think that's something that I think about a lot. And that character was a way to kind of, yeah, have that in the film. Did you think about what it was like to be an eight-year-old when you were making the movie? Like your own experience of childhood? Um, well, he's, he's, he's nine. Um, nine, thank And you. I, I did have this example right in front of me that I was constantly dealing with. And there were actually six when I was writing this. But anyways, I had a kid in front of me, you right. know, and a kid consciousness. So I was... Um, and part of the time was like quarantine time, right? No, that was after. Okay. That was editing during that point. But uh, writing, and I had so I had that, and not just my kid, all the kids that your kid introduces you to, and just like childhood, the way that you're immersed in a way that you rarely are as an adult, you know, if you don't have kids. So just like volunteering at school, just hanging around with friends' kids, you're dunked into that consciousness, right? And so there's lots of things I heard or I glanced or I... Or I felt, right, that from all that world, not just my kid, that I incorporated. One of my favorite parts of the script is the orphan story. This is orphan story that the kid likes to do where um, it's like a role-playing thing where you're, his parents had children that died and the orphanage sent him to replace those kids and he needs to know everything those kids did to, to do it, right? That's something that Aaron Dessner's daughter, Ingrid, does. And so I learned about that being hanging out at their house, and Aaron did the music for the film, so we were together. And, and I said, you know, oh, that's amazing. And it feels like Jungian, right? It feels there's something about it I was just very attracted to. It. So I asked Ingrid and Aaron if I could use that, and they helped me like get it verbatim like, into the script. And then it's real interesting sharing that story with people or just talking about it. Like so many either adults did it as children or people tell me that, oh, my kid does the orphan, some version of the orphan game. So, yeah. When you see those things, do you find yourself only seeing them as an adult outsider or do you feel them empathetically? You mean like, and especially like as I'm writing? Or just, yeah, and that kid stuff. And just as you're as you're seeing all these kids that are around you because you have a kid, like, mm -hmm. do you see things from, from their eyes as well as from yours? I guess that's part of the gig of writing, right? You do kind of, I don't consider myself like a deep writer. <laughs> I'm like a good listener and then a good editor. I'm good at like finding objects and putting them into a shape that makes a story. Like, or at least that's what I like. That makes me feel like really mentally healthy, you know, like I'm receiving and I'm like heightened awareness of like what's going on. That's, I like all that. But you do channel or whatever it is. You do kind of get into this, you're wearing the mask of the kid and you kind of just keep going. You maybe 
you heard someone say two sentences, but you got to do six sentences, right? So you just kind of, you go on to a flow, which for me is mostly a caffeinated uh, listening to music on repeat situation where I literally kind of get out of my head. So I guess I am entering that, but to be honest, it doesn't feel like a deep embodiment. It feels more like I'm surfing on on some facts that I got or some pieces I found, right? And I'm And I'm trying not to think about it too much and just sort of like go with it. But I guess... I don't know. I, I guess maybe as a parent, you spend a lot of time deeply enmeshed, right? And deeply, even if you're not like the kid, you are so feeling what is going on with them. You are so in the midst of it with them and in an entanglement with them in a beautiful way. And I think that obviously got into the writing, or that obviously got into this piece. Just as before, like helping my dad die right? It's such an enmeshed situation. Like you're literally grinding up the medicine and sticking in the back of the mouth so they don't choke while they swallow it, right? Like you are so tied together. So it's easy. The line between you and the other is blurred. What music do you listen to on repeat and how on repeat are we talking about? So I really need to, because I'm just too much of a rational soul, right? So I need to get like on drugs without taking drugs, right? To write. So it's all different kinds of things. So it's often it's that the national's been one for me. Like it could be a song like Graceless. I'll just like listen to Graceless for a day or a week or a month and on headphones and on repeat. And it just becomes like um, a soup, like a, an emotional soup you're sitting in or a company. Like the national really became company for me and then I became friends with them. So it's like double company because you actually know the person. Um, I, I immediately thought that you were saying that you either listen to The National or The Broadway Show Company. It was either Stephen Sondheim or The National. <laughs> but it, but it's lots of things. And often it's just like, like just going from the verse to the chorus. Like those three seconds will mean everything. And it's like the, it's a, it's a guide post. It's a lighthouse that I'm aiming towards. Like it's like, it has the, just the right vibe, electricity, emotion, whatever it is that I'm like going for. So it's, um, yeah, it's lots of different songs help me do that. What do you think is the relationship between that feeling when you're chasing that feeling when you're writing a feature film and your long career making music videos? Yeah, obviously. Or, or also, I think, you know, so I started off trying to be a professional skateboarder mm-hmm. in the 70s. That didn't work out. And, but skating introduced me to punk. And I was in punk bands when I was 15, 14. And I'm just a frustrated musician. Or I just I find music is the highest art. Music is the most ma- magic, most working on the deepest, most unconscious level and somehow connected to life, right? To me. So all my life, all my creativity has been somehow around music or trying to emulate what music does. And I think it's been this great deep frustration in my life that I can't like be and I hang out with bands so much, right? And my career has been like doing either record covers or music videos or then like having these relationships with bands. So I'm around them all the time. So this frustration and not being able to do that, not having that ear, not having that talent has also been this thing that pushes me forward, I guess. And like the other things I've done, the filmmaking, whatever, it's the, that frustration can be like a great incentivizer or just pusher, whatever you, whatever that word is, just pushes you forward. So I do feel like I'm trying to emulate the quality of music. 
Even more with Mike Mills after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR comes from Discover with a message about rewards. If you're a loyal credit card customer, you should be rewarded for your loyalty, preferably with something that's useful, like cashback match, for instance. Discover matches all the cashback you've earned at the end of your first year. Finally, rewards that make sense. Discover exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations apply. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Mike Mills. He's a writer and director who's worked in TV, music videos, and film. His movie, 20th Century Women, was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. He has a new film called Come On, Come On, which is out now. Let's get back into our conversation. My wife's family, they're all musicians, none of them professionally, and at varying levels of skill. But I remember when I first started dating her when we were teenagers, going to their house, and they'd be sitting around like playing a guitar or something. And I remember the feeling of of being like, wait, you can make art just for your own satisfaction at home by yourself? It doesn't uh, have to be perfect? Uh, <laughs> uh, I wonder if you're able to get there with music, like, uh, to I, be like a 70th percentile, yeah. you know, well, I, the overall human population yeah, musician. Yeah. I don't know what percentile I'm at, but I play music all the time. Like I play the piano all the time and how, my kid always goes like, no offense, but it always sounds the same. <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait, I'm playing something completely different. And I, you know, I, I was in punk bands all through my teenage years. And so I, I play instruments and stuff and it's all alone, it's all at home. And I did this long project with a national and ended up going on tour together. And they're so nice and they're so inclusive. They're like, Mike, get on stage. I'm like, hell no. <laughs> like as much as like, that's the dream. I know that that's not me. So... I mean, yeah. is it the whole point of punk rock that you don't have to be? Well, that's good my at old punk rock band. That the National is not a punk rock band. I it's know. a complicated band, and so I'm not getting. I'm not playing with you're those not boys. Compo- you're not composing contemporary classical music on the side, <laughs> like those dudes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, no, they're like, yeah, I remember this. You could play Ryland Assistant B. I'm like, ah, not not happening. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you did. I mean, you made music videos for a long time. And one of the things about making music videos is I'm sure you have to, you know, they're for a song. So you have to live with that song pretty intensely. Mm -hmm. And not only do you have to live with that song pretty intensely, but you have to come up with not just an idea, Mm -hmm. but if I understand the process correctly, a bunch of ideas for what that song could be in a film. Mm. Yeah, or sometimes I do a lot of ideas. I'd often do just one idea. But it's actually, I think that's where I got this thing from because I would put the song on loop. And because my first ideas would be kind of like obvious and like kind of just like two on the nose, two pointing at what it in, seems like. In improv, they say A to B. Okay. And, but like after about a day of listening to it, I started to have really weird ideas that were linked or had a, um, reverberated with the song, but had an autonomy too. 
right? And that's when it gets really interesting. And often that's what the band was interested in, like a cool, like Air liked ideas like that. So I think I actually, that's where this whole weird thing of like trancing myself out to music started. But like also like when I'm on set, either I have live musicians or I play music constantly. So in between, as we're setting up, as we're doing things, I'm playing music all the time. It just enchants the set. And it makes it like not a job, but a, I don't know, like an adventure. And it's crazy how it changes the mood of everyone. So I'm constantly employing it. When you say live musicians, like a string quartet, like a, like a, on some, like a scene some, at an art museum sometimes a on a, uh, Usually it's like a French horn or a cello, you know, in the morning. They'll just be there for like an hour or two in the morning. You said, you know, like I know. I do not know. <laughs> I do not know about this so French horn that, cello connection. So like one guy in a French horn on yeah. the corner of the set, and it's in the morning as you're getting started, and it just kind of trips everyone out. Like, wait, is that live music? I'm like, yeah. And I have done it on ads where I have a bigger budget, where I have had a quartet, and I instructed them every time I say cut to start playing. It was just kind of a lark, and um, it was really fun because it, it was a really busy day. So we ended up being like the camera crew and the quartet were in this like funny competition with each other. That was more just like a weird thing. When the crew enters a work site or the cast and there's a cellist playing and it takes them a beat to figure out where the music's coming from. Oh, this is a guy sitting in the kitchen playing the cello. It's a delicious sort of pulling the rug out under the workplace thing. And that as a director, I'm constantly trying to do things like that. Like that just make it feel like, like I think enchant is a good word. It just makes it feel like something unusual, strange, playful, and uh kind of like surprising is going to go on today. Aren't some people just like, I'm trying to do my job, Mike? Well, they're not playing while they're acting. So no, I think people mostly enjoy it. Who knows? (laughs) 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 The director is always always the last one to know what everyone's actually thinking. So maybe everyone hates it. But no, it seems like people really like it. Or it, it, uh, it just sort of makes them, I don't know, just changes the day. What is a lesson that you learned from making videos that was useful to you as a feature filmmaker? I think doing videos, you know, I was kind of chasing Spike Jones and like Michelle Gondry and people like that who had done a lot more by the time I got started. And they all had like stories or at least like a Rube Goldberg. There was like a some kind of causality or some kind of idea going on. And I think that's, it led me to be a writer-director because it when you are doing video treatments, it's like an idea contest. There's like you and five other directors all competing and you turn in a treatment. So that idea contest thing, I don't know, it felt important or it suited me or I liked that. I liked that way of going because I got into film, like I went to art school, didn't go to film school. And the teacher that meant the most to me was a man named Hans Hacke, who's like a German conceptual artist. And so all of us that like liked those classes and kind of, were all like pretentious Hakkaites. That was also another like you're an idea generator more than you're a, a worker in any particular medium. So I kind of always say like my film career actually started in Hans Hacke classes because it's all about being able to articulate and execute and think around your idea, you know, and understand plan B and C and uh, recover from the failure of our idea and f- or find out what's good and bad about it. All that kind of thinking is so directory. It's so, it's the stuff of directing. So I felt like that's where it started. I mean, I feel like, like you're talking about 
two people that went before you and Michel Gondry and Spike Jones, who also very famously, I mean, made some amazing music videos. Mm-hmm. Like those music videos were, you know, there are music videos from that time when some music videos had budgets that are defined by their like aesthetic qualities, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, mm-hmm. David Fincher music videos that mm-hmm. he directed a bunch of are really intensely aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I think Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry music videos are defined by those kinds of ideas that win idea contests that mm-hmm. you described. Mm-hmm. They're full of amazing ideas and their movies are like that too. Mm-hmm. They're often about an amazing idea. Mm-hmm. The transition from that kind of thing to your movies is less clear to the outsider, I think. Yeah, I think I'm less, whatever you want to call it, sort of advanced sci-fi or, or like <laughs> interesting sci-fi, which those guys get into more. They, You know, also I will say their things are highly aesthetic, but I find them more dirty or like broad or less like just about being pretty. But it's like deeply visual, deeply about, I don't know, exploring an idea and a vibe through aesthetics uh, Michelle especially Michelle's like such a craftsman of all kinds like a scientist you know so I think they are equally aesthetic just in a different kind of paradigm of what's good can you give me an example of an idea that you had when you were in art school that you really had to work over work over what do you mean like that you really had to you really had to do a lot of figuring out on whether it was figuring out what the medium was or that it changed a lot and working on it. And you don't have to be embarrassed if it's something embarrassing because <laughs> you were <laughs> 20, nothing embarrassing in 21 or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Don't worry about that. It's yeah. a long time ago. It's, it's, yeah. it's water under the bridge. Well, that's an interesting question. I haven't been asked that. So, okay. While I was saying that I was a big Hantaka student and we did like very conceptual pieces in that class, I also love to draw, and drawing's how I got into art school. I had a horrible, horrible, horrible high school grade point average. So the only reason I got into art school is because I could draw. You know, it was like my ticket. And I can remember when you were just asking me that question. That I did this long series of drawings. They're often about the shape of a house and the idea of home, but it was all about being like a suite or multiple images that were like playing around, and there were like large scale drawings. And so it's very kind of physical and processy, kind of like music, really. It's like a flowy thing that's experiential. You don't know where it's going. I think that's music to me too, right? And there was a lot of erasing involved. Like literally that was like a big part of the aesthetic of those pieces with like all the erased lines, you know, and this kind of like layering of grays and then the final black on the top. And... Yeah, there were a lot about what got erased and that you could see the eraser and then you see sort of like the where it ended up. And I, I don't know what I'm talking about right now, but I still I still like that memory is nice. That memory is um and it feels somehow akin to what I do. I mean, I feel like as you describe it, you are describing it that memory like it is physical to you right now. Uh-huh. A bit. Like it I is, see your body reacting to Because <laughs> it is very, like, you, your hand will travel three or four feet in either direction. So it, that does become, like, a, a very physical event. And then, yeah, drawing is physical, right? You are creating lines. And then you're, um, you're doing it over and over again. That's the other part. So I don't know. I don't know. That doesn't, 
even to me, totally relate to the act of filming, relates kind of to the act of editing. Because editing, you'll go over scenes so many times, so many iterations of a scene, hundreds. Often once you show to people and then you kind of react and take notes, go back. And yeah, that does feel like it relates. But I don't, that's kind of mysterious even to me why I brought that up or what, what it has to do with this. Can you tell me the steps that you go through writing and where other people enter into the process? So this one kind of came quicker. Often they take like two plus years and it's kind of hellish. You know, like oh, the first six months is rad and then the rest is like increasingly difficult. This one came pretty quick. And so I started with talking to my friend Andrea. Andrea Longacre-White is one of the producers of the film and a great friend of mine and is so positive and knows me and knows my trips and knows my oh, unbearable... Eeyore vibes I can have about my own work, right? And, and just pushes me out of it. So the, so I kind of had to okay everything with her. <laughs> what if it was like this? What if it had that? What if it was this? What if it was that? And then I would write off of her energy for a while. Then there's a long solo process where you're doing the, for me, it's the music thing. And, and the music thing is really very much at the beginning when you're trying to like summon it. You're trying to ask for it. And it's very open-ended and, and very caffeinated and just sitting there with a notebook and just anything that comes to mind, like very trusting, just intuition and conscious stuff. And then going through those notebooks and like transferring them to like Evernote thing. And that becomes like a very long list of things I liked from the notebooks. And then there's another Evernote file, which is a, a first stab at organizing all that stuff I edited, right? oh, maybe this is kind of an act. Maybe this happens. Maybe this is a sequence of these random things I found. And then it goes to another Evernote that's like a cut down of that and kind of now looks almost like an outline, but not really. It's like a flowy outline. And then I'll start actually getting into Final Draft. I tried to avoid Final Draft as the software you use to write scripts. I like Final Draft a lot to everyone at Final Draft, but I hate <laughs> getting into it because once you're there, you're stuck in this weird, you're like... You're like concretized and like limited and like you start writing like scripty kind of things, right? So I I try to like not do that as much as I can, right? Then after a while of doing that, I go back to the verbal thing, like maybe bringing Andrea in or any friend I can <laughs> cohere us into the room and go back to just telling it, right? And that really often brings it back alive again, you know? And then sharing it with lots of people. I'm very into other people, other people's help because you lose track, so, and then what responds and what doesn't? And there's a lot of correlation. Like everyone hates this scene. Everyone likes this scene, you know? And you're like, okay, cool. I'm beginning to learn what I'm writing myself. And then the older I get, this is going to sound pretentious and woo-woo and all that. I don't think I'm in any control of what I make or what I do. I feel like you summon things, but you summon like whole beings. Like the film, the script, the cosmos of the film. Yeah, it kind of came from me and my kid and all that. But it's like its own weird entity <laughs> that, that you kind of ask to come forward. I think Mr. Fellini would say this too, and kind of getting this from him. And it brings problems and pluses to your life and to its own making. And it kind of like asks for people. And there's certain people are like, no, I don't want that energy. I don't want that thing. And there's other people like, yeah, I don't even know why. And so then it's kind of like learning how to ride that wave or like 
understand that it's not totally under control and that it is this kind of like from the cosmos spiritual entity blob that you're sort of helping fertilize and bring forth. And it's part you, but it's equally not you. Yeah. And you have all these actors and... Then that's the next phase. <laughs> yeah. And I love... So then there's this radical, beautiful, weird exchange, especially if you write material that comes from a very personal space where you're like, okay, my worst nightmare is that this is just like a bad memoir, right? This has to be a film that's alive for strangers in a dark room in a theater down the road, right? And the way that it's alive for them, if it's really alive for the actors, how is it? be alive for the actors. Well, you have to get under their skin, right? You have to pick someone who you feel like it's going to get under their skin somehow. And it has to become alive for them. And they have to really be the author of the character. And if I'm doing, if I'm on, and they ask me any question, I never answer. <laughs> I just ask the question back, right? Like, what do you think? You're like, how it will, you know, why is he doing this? I don't know. That's weird, isn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know. Why do you think he's doing that? You know? And then, the more you can get them to co-author, for me, Ely, this is my way, the more exciting it is, the more fun it is. And it becomes this like lovely thing of like giving the keys over or this weird exchange of like, here's some content, here's some blood, some, what do you call it, compost. And they enact it, which I can never do, right? I can never be it. And that way, actors are like musicians to me. You know, it's this thing I can't do. So I'm like, forever enamored, forever their biggest fan. Yeah. So they, everyone, everyone says like, yeah, how personal is this? Or, and it's a good question. I would ask the same question. And I always answer like, well, my dad is not Christopher Plummer at all, you know? And Christopher made that character. It's, it's Christopher's instincts, blood, brain, soul, history that's making what you see, you know? Christopher got stuff from me and my dad, but it's Christopher, you know, and the same thing like Woody or jo I'm so not Joaquin, right? Like you, you know me, I'm not Joaquin at all. And, uh, but there's this lovely, I don't know what the word is, like dance that you do with the actor and then giving it to them. We'll finish up with Mike Mills in just a minute. When we come back from the break, Come On, Come On features real interviews with real kids, and they were really conducted by the movie star Joaquin Phoenix. We'll talk about how Phoenix prepped for that. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Airbnb. If you've ever thought about hosting, you might have a few questions. What's it like? Where do I store my stuff? Is hosting worth it? Now, with Ask a Superhost, you can get free one-on-one -on -one help from Airbnb's most experienced hosts. Whether you're curious how to get started or just wondering if it's right for you, you can now ask someone who's already hosting. Learn more at airbnb.com slash askasuperhost. Hello! I'm Pee Wee Herman. You might know me from TV, but I really want to be a DJ! It took some convincing, but KCRW finally agreed to give me an hour on the radio to play you some music with my friends. <laughs> anyway, tune in for one hour of the bestest, most funnest time you'll ever have on the Pee Wee Herman Radio Hour. I am personally inviting you to tune your transistor radio in to hear me or go to KCRW.com. Duh. <laughs> It'll be available for the whole week. 
from November 26th to December 3rd. So you can listen to it again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> the Pee Wee Herman Radio Hour was produced by Maximum Fun and can be streamed on KCRW.com until December 3rd. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is filmmaker Mike Mills. He's the writer and director of the new movie, Come On, Come On. Let's get back into our conversation. Just one last thing I, I want to ask you about, which is, so as I said, this this main character, Johnny, is like a radio producer, sort of this American lifey type radio producer. And there's a lot of scenes where Johnny is interviewing kids. I presume these are real kids mm-hmm. um, really being interviewed. And you often show this part of the interview where he says, you know, you can tell me if you don't want to answer the question or mm-hmm. if you're not comfortable asking the question. Mm-hmm. That's something that applies in some interview situations. Yeah. Like it's something that I may have remembered to say to you before we <laughs> talked. I'm not sure. Um, but certainly like if I'm interviewing an artist, I'll often, if I know I'm going to ask something yeah, per- yeah. personal or intimate, I'll, I'll let them know. Yeah. Why did you choose so often or multiple times anyway to show that? Yeah. Well, so that's an interesting thing to bring up. So so yeah, so Joaquin's playing someone that's it's a little bit Studs Terkel, it's a little bit Scott Career, it's a little bit uh this American lifey world. It, to me it's sort of like an old school radio person who like doesn't know about podcasts, or he does, yeah. but like he comes from radio. And so Molly Webster from Radio Lab is his partner and she's not an actress. She really is a radio journalist. And she was always my reference point for that character. And then my, um, uh, Jen Vendetti, my casting person in New York, just brought her in. And I didn't even know she was going to. And I was like, wait, that's Molly Webster. That That is Molly Webster. That's her voice, you know? And she's like quite good and natural at being an actor and like really beautiful. And like, it was this weird thing. So the way that Joaquin prepped for that role was just to go around with Molly and do interviews because he really wanted to understand the gear and just the whole thing and they went and i would set up people for them to interview and they would go do it on their own i wasn't there and then they would come back and we would like talk and i just noticed they started doing that i think molly taught joaquin to do that and i wasn't something i wrote or knew was going to happen and every single interview they would do it and they would say it at the beginning they each would do it so i think molly must have taught joaquin that and to me it's well, it speaks to one of the themes of the movie. It's like non-cohesive, hopefully, relationships are being built. Well, that's the goal, at least, right? I think cohesion does happen by accident all the time, and it's something. It's not an easy thing to avoid. And like real listening has some idea or goal of consent built into it. We had this whole really interesting scene that's not in the movie where Molly, Joaquin, Jabuki, uh, Smith-White, and and Sonny Patterson, who um, is also a non-actor person from New Orleans, they're all sitting around a table just talking about the interviews, just improvising. And they got into this conversation about consent. And it was just too long to put in the film and it felt like indulgent, but it was, it was so great. And it was a lot about like, you know, like, do these kids ever really give consent? Because yes, they signed a paper. Yes, they know, but like, at that age, nine to 14, not everyone has like the agency to really say no. And it's so easy to keep saying yes, right? 
and what is consent. But the whole intention was to create a conversation where you're not, how little can you guide the conversation? Like how, how much freedom can you give the person? How much safety can you give the person? That was something that we all talked about a lot. And I do feel like it's a uh, parallel to what Viv's mothering is like, right? And so Johnny's learning about parenting from Viv, which is like has a nonviolent communication aspect to just her way of being in the world, right? And you're also capturing stories from all these people in your life, all these people who you're putting on the screen. And indeed, one of the people that you're putting on the screen is a child. Uh-huh. So it must be, yeah, <laughs> it must be in your mind all the time. Yeah. There's lots of things. So we interviewed all these real kids who are, are I mean, all kids are real, but whatever. They're non-actors. Right. And nothing was scripted. And they're speaking their truth. They're talking about their lives. And some of the things they said we didn't put in because it felt unintentionally coercive or felt unintentionally. What we learned to do as adults is to protect ourselves. And kids have this like tremendous willing to be vulnerable and make themselves vulnerable. And there was a lot of discussions between me and Jen, my editor, about like what we can include and what we shouldn't include, just leave private, you know? And it's still a big question, you know, like we could go back into that film and just re-worry about all that at any moment. With Woody, the kid who plays Jesse, and Woody's mom, Vonda, I feel like those are such intentional people who are so grounded and smart. And Woody has such a deep rudder um, that while he, he now, Woody, I think just turned 12 recently, and they were in like 9 to 10 while we are shooting. Woody wants to be an actor. Woody is an actor. You know, that's Woody's love and passion for life. That isn't Woody's life, right? But it is Woody's work and his heart work, right? So it's the job of respecting that, you know, and keep, I don't know, holding on to that in a nice way. But the non-actor kids we invited to be in the film, that's a really heavy responsibility that hopefully we got right enough, right? That's just endlessly dicey turf. Woody, the actor who plays the kid Jesse in the movie. It's pretty extraordinary. And one of the things about the performance is its lack of mannering. And that includes not just manner of speech, but like physically in the body. Mm -hmm. Was that something (laughs) that just came to you whole cloth or was it? Yeah, it's a gift from Woody. It's a gift from Woody. I think maybe Woody's mom, Vonda, too. So it's not just manner. It's also like a lot of kids are trained, like when you're on camera, like don't rub your face or, you know, appeal to the camera, point towards the camera. Don't put your, don't pick your nose. Don't, don't wriggle. Don't do all these things. And so, so Woody, when I met him, he came to um, do like a, whatever, an addition, a test with Joaquin, but we did some stuff alone. And I noticed right away two things that are like magic. One, Woody doesn't care about the camera. Woody does not perform for the camera, which as a kid actor is gold. It's like, well, for naturalistic acting, it's what I need so much. And it's the thing, it's like when you're trying to buy a house and the kitchen and the bathroom's being remodeled and the house is ruined. It's like that's so what often you bump into with like a, an actor who's very young, who's been kind of trained. They've been trained to appeal to the camera. And somehow, I think Vonda's smart enough to just know, like, don't do that, right? And Woody never got through that. And then that Woody's very wriggly, you know, like any nine-year-old is. There's just a lot of physical energy. And yeah, deliciously, 
he doesn't stop himself from like scrunching his eyes or putting his hands in his hair and all that. And I definitely encouraged it. And Joaquin's were all that way, right? Like, uh, Joaquin's like that too as an actor. So, so that was really very much encouraged. But then it almost sounds like Woody's sort of a savant or something, which is really not the case at all. Like Woody's doing an accent the whole time he's British. So he's doing an American accent the whole time. When I say cut, he goes, oh, really? Like he goes right back in his real, his real voice. Um, and I was just looking, I had to do <laughs> some behind the scenes. Oliver from yeah, Oliver, exactly. apparently. Turns into a really bad American doing a <laughs> British accent. And then I was just had to do all this looking at takes to do this behind the scenes stuff. And I was reminded of a scene where Jesse learns that his dad is being hospitalized. And he cries at this one moment. What he cried on that line for like eight takes in a row. Like not on the other lines, just on that line. So like that's a detailed, controlled actor like that can summon it like that. So I had a really neat experience. Maybe I'll end with this. I had a really neat experience where Elle Fanning, my great friend who was in 20th Century Woman, saw the movie just recently, really enjoyed Woody's performance. And we're talking about it. And she said, you know, I always hated being called a child actor because it makes me feel like what I was doing was different than what the adults were doing when I felt like my work was the same as the adult work and I wasn't less than or like some strange animal that just lucked into getting it right. And Woody's that for sure. That's like as crafty and worked on as any of the adult work. Well, Mike, I'm so grateful to you for coming in again and uh, it's so nice to get to talk to you again. Yeah, so fun. It makes me feel like the film happened if I chat with you. It's like, I'm here. <laughs> Mike Mills. His new movie, Come On, Come On, is fantastic. It's playing in theaters right now. Go watch it. If you haven't seen his previous film, 20th Century Women from 2016, that is also fantastic. You can stream it on a bunch of different platforms right now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. We were in our office on MacArthur Park in Los Angeles this week, and uh, all of the dirt in MacArthur Park is covered with something white. We don't know what it is. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffitt. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for letting us use that great tune. You can keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.